0: Tim, thanks for joining me on season two of Brunch with Brent. I really appreciate having you.
1: Well, thanks. It's great to be here.
0: Tim, for those who don't know, you uh, joined us early last year on Linux Unplugged. Could you give us a little bit of an introduction of who you are and what you do?
1: Well, I am a software engineer at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Southern California. And for those who might not know, you have nasa as a whole but then there are centers around the country that have various responsibilities and the jet propulsion lab their responsibility has always been robotic spacecraft you know we don't have a pilot it's not we don't do manned launches so all these spacecraft you've read about over the years like voyager and cassini and the mars rovers those were all built and uh, launched and operated by the jet propulsion lab and so I started there in 1991, coming out of school, and I've been there ever since, except for one brief trip out to industry in the mid-90s, but I've been back and doing that ever since. And uh, my background is I'm an electrical engineer, but I, during my, my studies, I also studied computer architectures and software. So I, my, much of my career spent living in that, straddling that world between software and hardware. And so over the years, I've worked on a number of projects at JPL. i worked on, when I first came out of school, I worked in their deep space network. For those who who may not be familiar, JPL has three sites around the globe, so that as the globe rotates, all these deep space uh, spacecraft can be in view of the Earth. So there are these gigantic antennas. One of them is 70 meters across. If you can imagine an antenna, that's most, (laughs) most of the width of a football field wide. So when I in early in my career I worked writing software to operate those systems and then as my career went on I switched to the flight side worked on Cassini for a while worked on the Curiosity rover the one that's on uh, that's been on the surface for 10 years now much of that software was brought forward to the Perseverance rover so I have software running on that rover as well but uh, obviously in the most in the last 5 years or so I've been working on the Mars helicopter which is a small Semi autonomous helicopter that is a companion to the Perseverance rover. And so we operate the helicopter via the rover and it does flights around in the vicinity of the rover, doing scouting, taking pictures, getting a lot of great flight data. And so that project launched with the rover last year. We landed in February, so we're almost coming up on a year of op- the rover being on the surface. And then during April, we did a series of primary flights to prove the concept of flying on Mars. And then they went so well. And we got so so many awesome pictures that they decided to extend our, our mission. So we've been doing an extended mission of flying around and doing scouting for the rover ever since. So as of January 14th, the helicopter is still operational. And we're doing a series of repositioning flights back to the north to kind of meet the rover as it traverses around some of the features on the surface of Mars. So that's my background. I was asked to be the software lead. So I led a team of four to five developers to write the software and the operations tools, meaning the software used once the helicopter is on Mars, it downlinks a bunch of data and our team wrote tools to digest that data and do analysis on that data and so on. And so I transitioned from the flight software lead to the operations lead. And I still carry on that role to some extent now, We've gotten in somewhat of a routine that I turned over much of the daily operations to another very enthusiastic young engineer. And I'm actually consulting on some other projects at JPL now as well that look to taking advantage of what we learned in helicopter and putting it forward into future projects.
0: Oh, that sounds fun. I was going to say, after a year of the successes you've had, I was going to be curious about what you're doing now. But it sounds like you've handed that day-to-day torch over to someone who's Equally as excited about it. And the things you're working on now, I suppose, is kind of keeping you interested and maybe even bringing some of your expertise and innovating in new areas, which is keeping you probably pretty excited about what you're working on, I would imagine.
1: Yes, very much so. Because JPL and NASA are in some way starting to reexamine how they deploy hardware because of projects like helicopter. We used a lot of commercial hardware where a typical NASA project will use very, very, very reliable, but very, very old processing hardware to do their software. For instance, the rover itself has a processor that was essentially di- uh, designed in the mid-90s. But stable, right? <laughs> so, yeah, but it's designed from the ground up to be radiation tolerant and have wide thermal ranges,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? But it's also large and heavy and consumes a lot of power. and And the compute power compared to the helicopter. For instance, our helicopter, the main processor that we have in the helicopter, is about 120 times more powerful than the processor on the rover. It's a, and it's in a tiny, compact little size, about the size of one of those mini matchboxes. If you remember, yes, remember those? It's it's not very large at all, but it but it's enormously powerful for its size. And so, because that miniaturization gives you a lot of power, NASA is taking a longer look at those and saying, well how can we take this newer technology and wrap it in kind of proven ways of fabrication that make it more resistant to the kind of hazards you have in space, like radiation and the thermal variations that I mentioned, because just in space, because there's no atmosphere to mitigate, you know, the temperature is just a rotating spacecraft can swing through a hundred degrees in temperature from one side to the other. And so you get thermal cycling where, you know, things expand and contract and you have to design hardware so it just doesn't fall apart from the expansion and contraction so there's a whole field of how you build this hardware to make it more durable for space so what we're looking at is things like can we combine these two where we have these methods of building that are very robust but then also take advantage of these powerful processors that industry is producing
0: yeah because it sounds like in many ways the processor that you've thrown on the helicopter has kind of outdone itself in some ways and not only the processor but the entire system so i wonder if that's informing some of the deep battle tested nature of some of the you know bigger older hardware that you're using so simply by being there for such a long time you know it's almost been a year now that that's probably informing a lot of future decisions i would imagine
1: yeah sure and it's i think it's making them look at it a lot more closely because they see the advantages that the the kind of sheer processing power you can get from these offers but you know we don't we also we also don't want to throw out all of our experience that we've gained through years and years of hard lessons in building this really robust hardware we don't want to just say oh we'll just do everything like helicopter just buy it off of a catalog and throw it on there you know
0: <laughs> it's
1: just a cell phone right <laughs> yeah. and so we want to try to walk this middle ground where we say okay let's take advantage of our experience but also open up possibilities for Incorporating this new technology.
0: You know, it really reminds me of, I don't know if you've heard or listened to it, but I really got into BBC's 13 Minutes to the Moon podcast, where they explore the Apollo 11 and and Apollo 13 missions. And it really, you know, diving into some of the conversations that you shared on Linux Unplugged, where you kind of do a deep dive on the technology that has enabled all of this, um, it reminded me of how crazy the technology was back then when you know the moon landings happened Uh, because one of the episodes they go into detail about the computer that made all of the guidance possible and when you compare what that computer is like compared to today's standards it seems absolutely ridiculous but at the same time what they were able to accomplish with those kind of computers with very very Dedicated instructions to those computers is kind of amazing. And it sounds like you're kind of carrying that on, but just with completely new technologies.
1: Yeah. And I think the term disruptor might be overused a bit, but (laughs) even the notion of putting a computer on a spacecraft and and entrusting it to humans back in the Apollo days was considered like a major paradigm shift because back then the thing that people trusted was analog circuitry and mechanical systems because it was much more tangible. We're going to do this, put this thing called the computer on a spacecraft and let it let it do the guidance instead of the pilots. You can imagine the people's reaction to that at the time. So they had to push through those barriers even to put computers on. And, you know, so you see these similar kind of paradigm shifts going on where, you know, more and more in the modern space field, much more is going into software. You know, the hardware is becoming more and more of a shell to contain the software because people Mm -hmm. are starting to see the advantages of putting more and more intelligence in the software. And the fact that if you get it wrong, you know, assuming it doesn't kill your mission, there's always a chance of updating it. Whereas if you have very complicated hardware that you see some problem develop that you can't fix, you're kind of stuck.
0: And Mars or another planet is no place to be stuck, is it?
1: No, especially when you invested the kind of money and time into <laughs> developing these projects to say, well, there's a hardware problem we can't fix. We're done. Sorry. You know, that that yeah. that is just something that people don't want to have to face down
0: not acceptable is it yes and it sounds like you were in part let's say in part but you can you can accept the whole thing if you like um in part responsible for some of the linux adoption that went into you know i think this was a d project where you it's kind of experimental and you were telling me earlier how linux was a natural progression from things like solaris back in the day how was that transition for you from one to the other and why was Linux interesting to you back then and why is it interesting to you again today?
1: Well, coming from the Linux angle about 15 years ago when we were when JPL was very much a Solaris house, was I saw kind of the democratization of the platform as a good thing because with Solaris, you know, it was this big corporate Package and you bought their hardware with it, and it was very much a silo. You bought the hardware with the software with the services all together, and they were also extremely expensive. If rewind the the internal clock, but you know, back in the two thousand two two thousand three era, you know, a, a, one of the one of the standard Sun workstations was anywhere between fifteen 000 and twenty thousand dollars a pop. They were very expensive back then. That was actually
0: even more money than when you think about these
1: days, right? Exactly. And uh, as I mentioned, and I think it was this podcast, you know, our previous the uh, Linux Unplugged one was I discovered Linux and I put together a system out of basic parts you can buy from Fry's Electronics. May it rest in peace. You know, <laughs> I was thinking you were going to say Radio Shack, <laughs> <laughs> but I put together a PC for a couple grand work and ran linux on it and it compiled our code at the time twice as fast as the sun machine did that that cost (laughs) seven to eight times more
0: but i'm surprised um that that experiment hadn't been done before in a sense like that the solaris guys weren't like oh we kind of really keep track of of what else is out there and and so what was the incentive for you to even give that a try
1: well i was trying to you know i saw some of these um, tool environments that I kind of like that were in Linux, you know, build build environments and things like that, and okay. compilers, and and uh, I saw it as a way to take advantage of them, and also just trying to be a good, if you will, a good steward of JPL's money, right? If we could have a project where we, because sometimes the developers would have to share machines because they were just so expensive, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, the idea that you could you could have more machines that were more powerful and more people's desks just kind of was a, was a multiplier of people's efficiency and a better use of JPL's money. And so I, that's why I started looking into it for my project. And we we essentially turned on a dime at that point, And we switched from Solaris to Linux. And then when I was hired on to do Curiosity, the rover project, they were still using or were planning on using Sunboxes from the previous project. And I just said, well, let's try this, you know, let's switch and use these Linux machines instead because they're much more powerful and they're cheaper so we can buy more of them and for more developers. And, uh, you know, they were skeptical at first, but once I made, you know, I showed from my trade study that we did that it worked better, they pretty much switched too. And now it's very pervasive on the flight side of the house of JPL to use Linux for not only development but the ground systems themselves they run on Linux. And so back 15 years ago and I don't want to claim sole credit for this because there's other people that were advocating for it. I was just in a position where I could actually do it. But what's happened in the last five or 10 years is is that there's been a big switch to containerization and cloud tools, right? So I was able to get us to where actually using Linux on physical boxes, which was a big change. And then in recent years they've switched to, you know, running a big giant VMware instances. Now they're starting to transition to, to doing everything on the cloud. So there's like this AWS government cloud where the AWS provides services to run containers. And so JPL is switching a lot of their infrastructure to use them instead of physical machines. But it's still all living within Linux world. And so I'm glad I played a part in that. I don't want to overstate my role, but I think it was, it happened at the right time to to kind of catch the trend. Well, in many ways, it
0: sounds like you're really just taking the attitude that, you know, new technologies need to be looked at and considered and implemented if they really make sense. And that I would imagine at a place like JPL is kind of, it should be the way to go and, and okay, we rely on what we know, but we need to still stay very current because some of the new technologies allow things like, you know, the Mars helicopter to be as small as it is and to do some of the things it's doing. So I would say kudos to you for keeping your thumb on new technologies and not being afraid to continue to dive in even, you know, even even this far into your experience with, with all of that stuff to not stagnate is no small thing, I'd say.
1: And I don't think it's overt, but it's very likely that j p l getting a lot of institutional experience with Linux to the point where they trusted it for some of their critical tools for the ground systems or for development and even some of the enterprise tools that they use you know that are business related when it came time to to proffer up the helicopter as a platform running linux, you know they at least had some institutional comfort with linux as an idea because back when I was first doing it, it was kind of viewed as this how do I put it? Like the crazy uncle who's got everything wired up in his basement. You know, the people that were pushing Linux were kind of fringe, you know, they were, that's how they reviewed because they didn't have these enterprise solutions like sun offered at the time. And so if we had come c- completely out of the cold and just said, Hey, we're going to fly Linux on a helicopter. You know, they, there could have been a lot more resistance to it. Had we already not made the transition.
0: Take a moment to go to jupiter.party to support the entire Jupiter Broadcasting Network. We include ad-free versions of all the shows, plus bonus features such as the Linux Unplugged entire live stream, the quarterly report where Mike and Chris chat about topics of the quarter, and the self-hosted post show. And also, in the near future, I will be doing a special Mail Time with Brent where I read some feedback from you. Again, help support the entire network of your favorite shows with a membership by visiting jupiter.party. And so... Back then, you were a little bit, you know, pushing the envelope a little bit to try new technologies. Do you still find yourself these days being as adventurous maybe as you were back then when you were younger?
1: Yeah, although, you know, it's been tempered somewhat by my background on a, on a big flight project. You know, curiosity, I spent the better part of seven years on that project in the aughts, as they like to say, in the 2000s. <laughs> and uh, I, it did give me an appreciation for the kind of rigor that you have to to do to design a flight system and jpl has a very a very good history of just designing these really exotic flight systems that just work and they're challenging and difficult and so i was able to follow that arc of a development on the flight side using kind of the traditional approach which is how curiosity was designed we didn't fly linux you know we didn't do anything exotic like that we flew uh VXWorks, which is a Wind River real-time operating system that JPL has become comfortable with over the years. But not just the software side, but how they design the hardware to be redundant and safe and reliable. Being able to go through that arc as an engineer, it gave me an appreciation that that's valuable too. So maybe as I was a younger engineer, I was like, yay, just burn it all down and start over because there's cool stuff, right? Right. And having had that arc of experience. Kind of lets me hopefully in a rational way blend the two approaches where yes things like linux are cool but still have to show the kind of care in designing the systems that we did before and not just have a rose-colored glasses when it comes to linux because linux has its own personality its own shortfalls and advantages that you have to have your eyes completely open when you're deciding to use it on a project
0: I would imagine having all of that experience allows you to know when it's reasonable to try something new and know when it's essential to stick with the proven. And like you said, blending those two is actually the real strong point, right? It doesn't make sense to run too far in any direction.
1: Yeah. That's my hope is that I can successfully blend those. And yes, so you can go to a new project and say, look at the great experience on helicopter, but we also understand. And so that's, Propose this new project with that kind of experience giving it weight rather than just kind of being all gung ho for the latest technology and maybe you know showing poor judgment and how far you let it penetrate your your design and then cause some kind of big public visible failure that would in the long run maybe even hurt the the implementation or the you know incorporation of these new things into the whole space technology culture
0: and yet I would imagine in your personal life you, um, get interested in certain technologies that may or may not apply, you know, at work. Um, are there things you're working on these days that excite you and that you could see maybe would, uh, find themselves in your work environment? Or is there some stuff even that excites you that would never do that?
1: Well, it's going to shock you, but I'm not as much of a tinkerer as home at at home with all the, with the doing really wild out there technologies. I would imagine you get your fix uh, from nine to five or. Yes, yeah, it's, it's in, in some ways when you're spending time expending so much, so many brain cycles at work to try to solve some of these things. Sometimes it's fun to come home and just do the brainless stuff, like, you know, work <laughs> out in the garage and fix a sprinkler or something like that. You know, it's kind of, it's kind of a way to drain, to drain off some of that buildup of stress. And what's ironic for me is I have learned this pattern for myself over the years. And I I actually highly recommend it for, for young engineers, because sometimes young engineers are like, okay, we got this technical problem. I'm struggling with it. I need to pull an all-nighter and just keep hammering at it, hammering at it, hammering at it. And and I'm like, you know, sometimes if you just go off and do something completely unrelated, your brain is processing this in, in the background. I've had many, many times over my careers where I'm doing something completely unrelated like as i said in the shop fixing something or in the shower or walking my dog in the neighborhood when so all all of a sudden like a soap bubble soap bubble it'll pop and i will hear in my head i'm i'll say wait that's how we could do it and there there was several thorny problems during helicopter that we were grappling with and i just said i'm just going to go home and just do something else for a while and the solution presented itself so i think there's a life balance that sometimes it's good to get away from the technology and do something else and try to divest yourself of technology for a while. Because believe it or not, the analog world is kind of cool too. (laughs) It turns out (laughs) sometimes if you get really involved in these big movements, you can, you can neglect your family and do, you know, the kind of things Hmm. going on hikes, going to their, going to their track matches and things like that, going to their recitals. You, You need to achieve that life balance. And so at home, the kind of things I tinker with is, of course, I've got, you know, a whole network set up with an NAS that uh, Synology NAS that I tinker with packages on there, and we, I have a Raspberry Pi that I've played with to do like multimedia kinds of things, and uh, so I like to set up that thing. My wife despairs if something ever happened to me, that she'd have to call in like like a team of network engineers to figure out all the things that I did. <laughs>
0: Well, we're here to help if ever you guys need (laughs) something.
1: So that's, I've and so in some ways I've intentionally tried to declutter my life a little bit technologically at home so I can get that balance. But, you know, there's always things that I'm like, I I like to read up on. One of my fascinations is with, with automobiles, you know, Mm. I'm a big car buff. I like to read the car magazines. I think if I could have some ideal other career. You could just make it up and do it for six months and be like an automotive journalist. These guys that go out and and test cars go out in these big, you know, take it to the track and try it out, or take it through these long canyons and so things like that. And the intersection of technology with cars, I'm very fascinated with how you know the the in-car entertainment systems and the in-car autonomy and driver's aids are getting more and more advanced. And so much of that is software. They're they're the, the car industry, people just get in their car and drive, but they don't realize how much it's changed in the last 20 years from a largely analog system to completely computerized, where some of these modern automobiles will have 16 or 17 different computers doing some aspect of operating the car. So I'm always very fascinated with how they do that, how they build cars and how they interact with the driver. You know, that they have these new Augmented reality heads up displays that'll superimpose an arrow right on the street. So you know exactly where to turn. And it's very, some very cool stuff happening in the automotive world. And ironically, the automotive world has a lot of similarities with space because the automobile is a very hostile environment for electronics to operate and software has to be very reliable because you have human lives in your software hand you know, some autonomous system or some driver aid, like an automatic braking system, all these modern cars that will use their cameras to detect that you're approaching an obstacle and you're not realizing it's there. And and so the car will break for you. Well, what if that does that in the middle of the freeway at 80 miles an hour?
0: Mm -hmm. Not what you're looking for, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. That would be very bad. And so I'm, I'm fascinated. So I read up a lot about that and, and, uh, Enjoy that kind of thing as a hobby to read up on those.
0: You know, now that you describe it in detail uh, with your sort of fascinated voice, which I appreciate, um, the links between the two are quite clear. Like, um, I would imagine a lot of inspiration for one comes from the other. And surely there's some talent that moves, you know, from one space to the other as well, because like you said, there's so many different aspects that are quite similar and maybe, maybe an extra challenge in vehicles actually is that there typically is a human driving where for you guys, you you don't have that.
1: And the averages catch up with you in automobiles because you put out a few million automobiles a year. Like JPL may fly a few missions a decade with highly complex software and they may get lucky. There may be a bug lurking in there, but they don't, they don't, operate the spacecraft in the way that exposes it. But the automotive world, when you have people out driving in every kinds of situations, every kind of weather, every kind of way that people interact with their cars, it, it, it eventually it will expose if there's a problem. That's why they have, you know, recalls <laughs> and software updates for cars now. And they're getting to the point where they're doing over-the-air updates. You know, that's one of the things that Tesla brags about is that, well, we'll just download... Over the weekend, the car will automatically download its update for the software. you don't have to go to the you don't have to go to the dealership and have them plug in the car anymore. We'll just download it over the internet directly to your car and so you know the the automotive world is a very good space for proving out technology because people just mm. hammer their vehicles and and not intentionally, but you know there's just so many people acting as testers for the automotive companies that things will come out and they learn lessons. And one of the things that the space industry is doing is they were kind of insular for a while, like, okay, we, we're super smart. We know exactly how to operate spacecraft and, you know, we don't really need to talk to anybody else, but, but they've started to turn their eye towards the automotive world and said, you know, they probably learned some stuff that we could take advantage of in the way that they structure their, their control systems and how they design their hardware that, you know, maybe that would we could leverage a lot of that because the other thing that works for the automotive world is they have volume. They can design a very reliable system and make millions of copies of it. So there's a certain economy of scale there, too, that, you know, the, the space field can take advantage of and maybe reduce costs. So there's all these ways that these two industries can can actually interact and maybe learn from each other
0: fascinating. I know in the industrial world they have the advantage that they can iterate quite quickly, you know, one year to the next they're coming out with a new version of the vehicle where for you it's kind of well you put all your eggs in one basket and send it to a different planet, right? That's a little bit of a different cadence.
1: Yes, absolutely. The design cycles for space hardware are a lot longer and a lot more expensive because there's <laughs> because enough. it's just from the scale of economies, it's a smaller market and so a lot of these manufacturers build space hardware for the prestige not for the you know not for making lots of money Mm -hmm. have you interacted
0: at all with any of the new mining technology because it kind of touches on this realm too i'm i'm from sudbury ontario which is a mining town in northern ontario and i know there's a lot of innovation these days similarly to the automotive market but in sort of driverless mining vehicles that have to go through some pretty rigorous terrain, as you could imagine underground. I wonder if you've had any interest in that field or maybe, maybe I'm giving you something to go, go have a look at.
1: Well, I've, I've brushed up against it. I'll put it that way. One of the panels I was on last summer was there's an Australian space consortium and in Australia. And I didn't know this. I was educated during this, 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 conference in this panel was that australia has a very advanced mining field i mean the very advanced mining enterprise where they've because the outback and places in australia are very remote very hard to get to and very hard to set up places for people to live near the mining sites they've actually gotten very good at mining automation and so there are a number of talks on how different companies have been able to automate operations to the point where you can have uh, much of the company's personnel in a city like Adelaide or Perth and they can be in a data center there and they just do everything remotely. They'll have a mining facility that might have a half a dozen engineers there to fix stuff, but the, the, the equipment is remote to operate is operated remotely. The vehicles are operated remotely. And so it's very intriguing. I found it very intriguing. And the point of the conference was there's a, there's a young and growing Australian, uh, you know, space industry or space agency, and they're trying to look to the mining industry to figure out, well, how can we, you know, how can we take advantage of what they've learned? Because one of the Australia's takes on space because they are, they are such a big mining economy is to figure out, well, how can we do space mining? Wow. You know, because there's been estimates that the asteroid belt and some of these other free floating asteroids have vast amounts of ore and other things that are very difficult to get to on earth, but because there's a lot of big pieces floating around in space, you know, there's a lot of potential for mining. And if you've, if you've watched the expanse at all, it's just one of my new favorite sci-fi shows, you know, there's the whole, the whole culture of the, of the belters, you know, the, <laughs> the, this this whole kind of loose confederacy of groups that are out mining the the asteroid, the asteroid belt. But so that's a that's something that that you know, an intersection of mining and space right there is how do we get out get out of the gravity well? How do we get to the point where we can in a cost-effective way mine in space? And yes, so there is some there is some interesting uh, intersection there. I'll freely admit I haven't dug into it since then, but it did it was a very fascinating topic when I was listening in on it.
0: Yeah, I, I've certainly and so I have a photography background doing professional photography all over the country of Canada. And uh so I had a chance to do a bunch of mining stuff with a friend of mine uh in past years. And just going down there, the darkness and the you know, it's it's a very dirty place as well. And uh and yet there's all this really amazing technology down there. And it it just there's something about it that if I think for people like you and I, it's just fascinating how we can get so much done in these really punishing environments to, to put it plainly and that used to be you know all of that used to be done uh, just through human effort um, but these days the machines that are enabling us to do some of that cool stuff is is super fascinating and when you see how that transition is happening in so many different industries with some of the same technologies you know uh, there's, there's Linux in the automotive sector, there's Linux in the mining sector, there's Linux on you know the stuff you're working on um, it's, it's sort of really neat to see those technologies and how they can solve problems in so many different fields.
1: One of the things that I've enjoyed about Linux over the years is it's adaptability and you can see it because it, you have it on one hand, you have it running giant server farms. On the other hand, you have it running IOT. And on the third hand, you have it actually acting as a desktop environment for people
0: you know <laughs> right. who are in the
1: who are able to deal with you know some of the learning curve of deploying Linux for the desktop. They really enjoy it, right? So it's got it's 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 become a very adaptable environment. That's why it finds its way to all these different uh, environments because you don't really see Windows running you know on embedded platforms. They I know they have this Azure IoT product they're trying to push, but <laughs> right Windows is really primarily a user a user focused environment and uh you know there's there's just a lot of different places you can go with linux and i think part of what really fueled that was open source because mm. you can you can go and get the kernel and you can adapt it to your purpose and you don't have to pay somebody royalties to do it you can just get the kernel and use it and so if you're going to build a thousand you know uh, door switches for your alarm system You can get a tiny little Linux kernel that just does that, and you can program for it quickly and deploy it, and you don't have to pay a bunch of licensing. And so, I think part of what's driven all this is Linux as a core product is pretty flexible, but also the whole open source model has allowed it to just propagate everywhere, and even act as a undergird, if you will, for commercial products like Android. Because I don't know if a lot of people really realize, I'm sure this crowd does, because we're much more up the curve on linux but android Mm -hmm. has it has at its core a linux kernel
0: yeah i would i would think most people don't realize that
1: yeah they think android is like ios or something it's some custom custom operating system and so in that sense linux has has a vast penetration just in handsets that people use
0: i wonder how open source has been important at jpl as well it sounds like you've dove into it and at least understand for yourself personally uh how important it is but is is there an aspect of the open source ethos that really drives innovation at JPL for instance
1: I would say that it's quite prevalent in the non-flight area of JPL because JPL has flight products which are very carefully designed and managed and can, if you want to use the term configuration managed like certain specific sets of tools but on the ground side you know when you're designing ground software to ingest the data, analyze the data do planning. It's, it's pretty pervasive. So you I've seen lots of, of lunchtime talks where some group is do like rover planning and they'll find some tool that that they that does what they want so they incorporate it and they link it to another tool and and they they get this whole constellation of tools. I mean even for the helicopter we use Python for all of our ground tools. That's an open source product, mm-hmm. uh, and as our backend for a database to store all the data from the helicopter, we use Elasticsearch, right. which is also an open source technology, and it's been great. And we didn't have to, you know, pay for a big Oracle license or something for a database. We just we just instantiated Elasticsearch, and we use tools like all these open source Python tools. Uh, there's one called Matplotlib that's a plotting tool, a plotting module for Python. And so when we do all of our downlink of the data from the helicopter and we plot all these different things like temperatures and battery voltages and and you know flight paths and all this sort of thing, we use Matplotlib and it's basically you have an open source tool inside of an open source language like Python. And we use GitHub Enterprise to do all of our activities. We use GitHub issues to record everything we do when we when we do the downlink and the uplink. We have all this automation now that will take, you know, we'll downlink the data, the tools will process the data, and then basically generate plots and then push them to a GitHub issue. It's all automated. It spits out in like five minutes. You know, when it used to be, when we first started doing it a year and a half ago to practice, everything was manual. It would take us like an hour, hour and a half to do it by hand, <laughs> right? And yeah. so... You know, we use it a lot on the ground. And JPL, among many projects around the lab, uses open source because it's, it's an adage that I've learned as an engineer is that is that if I'm thinking of something like, hey, why don't they do it this way? Or how do you solve this particular problem? I know I'm not that smart that I'm coming up with a problem that nobody else has thought of and I could probably execute it perfectly if I wanted to implement a solution. And so I've really learned over the years that um, if you're thinking of a problem, somebody has probably addressed it somewhere. It's a matter of finding it and that's where open source comes in. Okay, so how do we take you know, a thousand images and convert them from one format to another, right? Well, I could sit there on the command line and I could open up a program, load it up and save it, from, save it as a PNG and do that for a thousand files, right? Or, Uh, or, (laughs) you know, you find an open source tool that does the same thing, right? Batch converts, because I'm probably not the first person who thought of something like that. It's actually kind of hilarious
0: when you think uh, much of what you guys are doing are actually just repeating what a lot of us are doing on the ground, except you're just putting it together in a way that allows you to accomplish things that humanity hasn't done yet. And uh, so that's actually kind of fascinating in a way I was giggling the whole time you were talking about sort of if I wasn't the you know the first person to think about this thing I've said that to myself so many times and then you just kind of you know open up a browser and start typing away some keywords and try to find someone else who's solving this issue um more intelligently or longer than than you have and uh what a great resource right
1: yeah and we're trying to pull the the perimeter of open source closer and closer to the flight world in that we want to take advantage of all these things because if you have a helicopter project like, like we had, or, you know, a technology demonstrator, it's not You don't have a whole army of people to go and invent stuff. You want to take advantage. You're always looking for some tool you can use some environment you can use to make your life easier. And so it has a big payoff in that you can concentrate on the stuff that are particular to your task, like flying a helicopter on Mars, not solving problems of, Database design and, yeah. you know, and <clears throat> data processing, you know, all these different things, writing code to do plots. Why would you spend a couple of months doing that when we what you really <laughs> want to do is design how to help, how to fly a helicopter on Mars, right?
0: It's almost like 80% of it. If you just put the tooling together in a novel way is kind of already done for you. And you guys really want to concentrate on that last 90% of like, okay, how do we use all of that back end to do something really innovative?
1: Right. And even in the flight world, uh, the software that we used for Helicopter, it's an open source framework called F Prime. You can actually go on GitHub and search for it and find it. It's something we developed back in, started in 2013 or 2014 at JPL. Uh, It was part of our group's work and it was something that I architected, which was well, how can we do the same thing on the flight side? Because there's common things that spacecraft do, right? They're, they 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 process commands. You know, you want a command to do certain things. It gathers telemetry and it sends it to the ground. It stores files. It transfers files.
0: Mm-hmm. they all com- sounds familiar, <laughs> yeah, there are these common
1: things that space every spacecraft needs to do, and every spacecraft kind of wants a ground system, so a uh, environment you run on the ground to receive the data and decode it and display it and allow you to send commands to the spacecraft and so if you're a project, you don't want to have to reinvent that every time, yeah, and you want to write the software that's particular to your project, like controlling a helicopter and so this framework that we developed in our group. Uh, serves that role on the flight side where a project can take the code and use what we've already developed and then add their own on top and and much more quickly get to the point where they're ready to to actually execute a mission. And so the helicopter gave that particular framework a lot of visibility. We actually trended on Git, GitHub for almost a week as the highest visited site on GitHub. Because Is that right? Yeah, it was very interesting. That's cool because uh, I had done this article in the IEEE Spectrum, which is probably what led to the Linux Unplugged appearance. Is what I and Likely, I talked about yeah. the fact that the helicopter used Linux, and that kind of got its own life. And you know, because the software framework is on GitHub, the, the CEO of GitHub noticed and was tweeting all about you know f prime and everything. <laughs> and you know, there's a number of projects on JPL who are using this now, and some universities because. When you have a student population, you know, building a spacecraft as a project, you want to get there as quickly as you can. And so Mm. the same concept is playing out on the software side. And it's been beneficial because I don't think we could have done it on helicopter if we'd had to do it completely from scratch. We we were able to take advantage of this framework and get a big boot up on what we had to do.
0: That sounds amazing. And does it feel to you... In a way, feel nice that you're giving back in a sense like i I wondered if having your open source software be used by others is kind of a nice way to to share some mentorship in a way
1: yeah it's it's been exciting for me personally because it was my own kind of idea in the beginning, and it's taken it's taken a hold and and gathered a lot of momentum and you're right about the mentorship because one of the things that JPL as an institution likes to do is it likes to to recruit from schools where they know that students have had some kind of a background in doing embedded programming or even better designing a spacecraft. That's why we love to go to universities that have a CubeSat program where you've seen students uh, getting a technical problem, doing trade-offs, finding solutions, working around problems they encounter, writing code that actually runs in that kind of environment. Um, JPL likes to see that when they go to recruit Uh, graduates. And so the extra dimension to this is what we've been doing as a group. Our group at JPL is we will basically form a partnership with the university and then introduce them to this software framework. And then we actually have a class that we teach. It's been a little constrained because of COVID, but before COVID, we were making a couple trips a year to universities and giving classes on how you design flight software, the kind of principles you have to keep in mind when you're designing flight software, that's different than say a web backend or Microsoft word or something like that. There's different priorities and different techniques. And so it's been an, it's been an outreach tool as well for us to, to prepare students so that when they come out of university, they are, they are ready to go when it comes to working at JPL. I mean, we have one engineer now on the helicopter team who went to, san luis obispo cal poly and became familiar with f prime and he popped out literally as a graduate went right to work on the helicopter and is doing really well because he had that background already when he was coming out of school and he it was less of a curve for him to come up to understand the jpl culture and the way you design spacecraft so there is so that part is it is very personally gratifying but it also helps JPL as a organization recruit new students because we can do this kind of outreach and kind of pre-train them before they graduate.
0: Yeah, It sounds like everyone's winning. Like how fun as a student to be using the framework that's actually, you know, identical to what's going on um, up in space. Uh, yeah, I, I would assume that's pretty fascinating.
1: One of the things I commonly say to students when I introduce myself and talk to them, I said, you know, I got to admit, I'm very jealous of you, <laughs> because when I came out of school in 1991, there was nothing like this.
0: Yeah, and yet you have a similar trajectory um, to that engineer you were just mentioning. In that, out of school, you 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 went almost immediately to JPL in a sense, right?
1: Yes, and uh, it would have benefited me to have had some of that pre-training because the, the kind of labs I did in in college were not particularly geared towards the space industry. Everything, so I had to learn. You know, I had to learn a lot more than some of the students today when they're coming out when they've already been involved in like a project where they build a CubeSat. They go through a lot of good in the trenches training and school of hard knocks kind of learning that I wish that I had had because I had to do that kind of on the job. Unfortunately, I've come out of the other end with some good experience, but I would have loved to have had that background, too. So that's what I tell them. I said. I'll say to them, you know, I'm really jealous because I would have loved to have been in this this kind of class as an undergraduate and doing the kind of projects that you're doing. And just because, number one, it helps prepare me. But number two, they're just cool. They're just fun projects. Yeah, I mean, right, can you imagine as a sophomore, you know, 19 or 20 year old, you, you built this little loaf of bread sized spacecraft that, you know, a year later is in orbit doing measurements and and, you know, you put it together. <laughs> That's just really cool in many ways
0: we live in kind of a golden age for that kind of accessible innovation and i think we need to keep that going
1: i totally agree and and the fact that you can get a little iot processor with linux on it that has sensors and the ability to control devices and you can buy it for about a 100 bucks and have your own little uh development environment up. that's that's amazing it's just You couldn't do that 10 and 20 years ago, but now it's so pervasive that it's very easy for somebody to jump right in and learn that environment without a big investment in, you know, personal expenses or time because you get all these kits, you bring them together and all of a sudden you're, you have a little robot driving around your living room, avoiding chairs and you know, you're having a great old time.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It feels like something like the raspberry Pi has also enabled this kind of tinkering and, and, I think I think even the F-Prime framework can run on it. Is that right?
1: Yes. As a matter of fact, if you download from GitHub, there's a, there are directions on how to build for Raspberry Pi and run it on a Raspberry Pi. And we actually have our continuous integration uh, server that we run to check the code out every night and build it. It actually checks it out, builds it for the Raspberry Pi, copies it over to the Raspberry Pi and runs a little set of tests <laughs> on it
0: that's very fun
1: so yeah you can take a raspberry pi and you can download the code and you'll have a much of the same code that's on the helicopter and then you can take that and you can basically because it's a framework with a couple of demonstration pieces of software you can basically delete that demonstration part and write your own custom software to do whatever you want on the raspberry pi so yeah it is very accessible that was one of the points that we wanted to to when we deployed F-Prime was that it should be really easy for somebody to download it and just run a quick demo. And what's happening in the open source aspect of that is there's people outside who are contributing back configuration files for other build environments, like, you know, some, oh. like uh, Arduino and and other uh, embedded Linux boards, other operating systems, you know, there's, cause there's a, there's a number of different embedded operating systems out in the industry. So people are writing, ports to that. And so there's a certain amount of momentum growing in people outside of JPL contributing back to the repository their own uh their own development, which is really cool. That that's kind of what we wanted to see happen.
0: When you were first designing F Prime, did you think it would be did you think it would be doing this?
1: I frankly did not know it would grow to the extent it did and get the notoriety <laughs> it's that it
0: very cool, isn't it? Because
1: it was we were kind of a guerrilla team in some ways. That's G-U-E-R, not G-O-R. <laughs> Although I've been accused of being a guerrilla before, before, that's not the spelling.
0: Uh, fair enough. Is there a mentor that um you got kind of connected to when you were younger that really made a difference for
1: you? Oh, absolutely. I think that's a really important aspect of engineering is finding people who are wise.
0: Would you consider yourself that now? <laughs>
1: Have you heard of the imposter syndrome?
0: Yes, absolutely. That's Living what it I right frequently <laughs>
1: feel when people look at me like I'm some sort of a guru or a mentor. Is I feel but that in itself is a lesson, isn't it? I think there's a there's a lesson to be learned that you should always approach these things with a, lo- a high level of humility, right? And also to to take the approach that you're never too experienced to, to keep learning or being approachable by somebody who finds a flaw in your approach or your reasoning, you know, the, you don't want experience to turn into arrogance. You want experience Uh to turn into truly a truly open way of approaching the world and trying to learn from anybody, you know, especially the young people today who come out and they're wizards at certain technologies. And I feel like I'm just stumbling along, just trying to keep up. (laughs) Right. And I try to learn from them, even though they're younger than I am or earlier in their career, I still think I can learn from them. And I think it's a way, I think that's what the best engineers are, not to call myself the best engineers, but they're the ones that are always trying to learn and be open to learning and being open to be, to learn from somebody else. And so I did have several of those people in my career who, who took the time to kind of teach me the ropes and give me principles about approaching engineering and approaching flight projects you know there's been two or three of those people through my career who I've really looked up to that took the time to sit down with me and say okay instead of just calling you stupid this is <laughs> this is how it works and this is the things you have to keep in mind and this is the approach that you can take and and it really really helped me in my career so when I encounter younger engineers I try to do that myself and try to Teach them that trying to learn a system, becoming a system engineer, you know, that system engineer in the classic sense is one who has a grasp on kind of all the operating principles in the system and knows how they interrelate. Is that in some sense, every engineer should be a system engineer. If you're Mm -hmm. too compartmentalized, you can become kind of set in your ways or you don't see the importance of other, you know, perspectives or things that are important to make the whole thing work better. And so I've tried to do that throughout my career because these people in my past have taught me that. It's taught me to look at the whole system and try to understand your place in it. And you'll just do a better job as an engineer if you do that.
0: Not to mention taking inspiration from cross-industry technologies as well, as we talked about earlier.
1: Yes, absolutely. Well,
0: Tim, is there anything you would like to share with our listeners? Something you're passionate about or some, I don't know. Life advice or something that you'd like them to know?
1: Well, I guess it's just a reiteration of what we just mentioned is that I think if you're in in any field, if you're in a if you're technical or anything else, it's it's this constant desire to keep learning and learning outside of your typical world. I joke about the, you know, automotive world, but there's other worlds, like you talk about photography, right? You're a photographer. Mm-hmm that adds another dimension to your life, which gives you richness and gives you another thing to learn. Cause if I've learned something over the years, it's that there's a, when you're coming into a field for the first time, there's kind of a freshness or a kind of an eager anticipation of learning about a field. And if you're in one field for too long, sometimes you can get a little stagnated and you're a little tired of the same thing. But if you try to expand your horizons and learn about it, a number of different areas, not just technically, but in your own personal life, different topics, different areas of interest. And always remember that, you know, there are cool, there's cool technology, but there's also people. And that Mm -hmm. you don't want to become so sterile in your life that you're not interacting with people. That's been one of the difficulties of all the work from home is that, you know, JPL is, is a very vibrant place. It's very much like a college campus in many ways with lots of uh, incidental interactions. And you, you see somebody, you ask them what they're doing, and they tell you about this field, and you're like, wow, that's really cool. And you, it just makes your life richer when you learn those things. And so having that well-rounded life where you're looking into different things, and especially the people behind them, because you're passionate about your photography, I'm passionate about, you know, space exploration. Somebody else might be passionate about, you know, marine biology, and they get really excited and talk about their field. That's, I think, is is the richness of the interaction. And so if you're a young engineer, my advice is always become well-rounded as an engineer, but also become well-rounded as a person. Mm -hmm. So that may not be profound. I'm sure people before me have thought many of the same thoughts, but uh, that would be my advice and just be humble through it all.
0: I think it's very wise advice and we can't be reminded of it often enough for sure. Well, Tim, thank you for joining me. This was a lovely conversation, and uh, I really appreciate your time. And actually, look forward to hearing what else you get into. It sounds like maybe you're going to push the boundaries uh, for another few decades as you continue your work. So I'm looking forward to that.
1: Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. And I really enjoyed this talk, and I've always also enjoyed the Linux Unplugged uh, podcast. You know, I actually learn, I've been learning some good tips and tricks and, and new technologies that I've started to look into for my own career, my own life from that broadcast too. So you guys keep up the good work as well.
0: Nice. Well, thank you. C- can I ask what might be one or two technologies that you've grabbed from there?
1: Well, I was very fascinated with with the uh, quick EMU package <laughs> because we grapple a lot with VMs at work to try to spin up something quickly to try and experiment on a particular flavor of an OS. And, and the, you know, just the fact that you could bring up on the command line, I managed. I thought that was a really cool utility. And forgive me if I forget the name of it, but little packages <laughs> like uh I have some security cameras at home. And you guys mentioned on your broadcast at one point about a package that runs on the Raspberry Pi that acts as a, a DVR, kind of an open source uh security video recorder. And so I've I've been tinkering with that. And so I hear about these little packages. I hear about different versions of the operating system like Pop OS or Debian. You know, these, which ones work for you guys better, which windowing systems? Um, it's one of those things where I'm interested, but it's hard for me to justify the time to go and just exhaustively explore all these different packages. So when a package pops up on the broadcast, I'll be like, hm, that's pretty cool. Save a link to that, go look at that. And then I don't have to spend as much time kind of surfing that world to find stuff. So that's been very helpful.
0: Nice. Yeah. It's like a, le- a, a learning shortcut while you're out walking your dog. You could just kind of learn a new trick or two.
1: Yeah. And it's actually the truth is that that's typically when I listen to the broadcast is walking the dog. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Lovely. Well, thanks for joining me again. And and thanks so much.
1: You're quite welcome.